This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. In our debut episode, I'll be talking with Eric Kowalczyk, a former captain in the Baltimore Police Department who is now a crisis communications expert. Kowalczyk was the spokesman for the department during the Baltimore riots of 2015. While Kowalczyk supported his department in managing the riots, he believes the culture of policing led to the explosion in tensions. This clash of cultures is explained in Kowalczyk's new book and the implications the riots have for police reform nationally. And now, The Nexus. I welcome you to this brand new podcast. What is the Nexus? It's the connection between political spectrums. It's how politics and communications intersect. As a professor now at American University in Washington, whose varied career has allowed me to work with and interact with people on both sides of the aisle, I am looking to explore complicated ideas and topics that are vital in our world. We hear too much about partisanship. We invest too much on our side. The Nexus isn't interested in taking sides, but in finding the truth wherever it may lead. There are liberal ideas that work, and there are conservative ideals that are worthwhile too. What is the Nexus between these two increasingly contentious realms? Let's find that point. In a hopefully objective way, I will bring on guests to discuss the crossroads of politics culture, society, and communications. The goal is to make these episodes challenging, illuminating, and entertaining. When I was in high school, one of my teachers once told the editors of the school newspaper, Art Swift calls it as he sees it. I was surprised by that term, but it fit then, and it has proven true to this day. On the Nexus, I will call it as I see it. Eric Kowalczyk was a captain in the Baltimore Police Department and the chief spokesman for that department during the city riots in April 2015. These riots stemmed from the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody. The lessons Eric learned formed the basis of his new book, The Politics of Crisis, an insider's prescription to prevent policy disasters. Eric Kowalczyk joins me now as the very first guest on the Nexus. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be here, and I am honored to be your first guest. (laughs) Terrific. So what would you say the Baltimore riots were about? At its core, when you look at the frustration that was expressed by so many people from not just Baltimore, but across the country who came into Baltimore, it is the rallying cry of the lack of social justice for all of the different reasons that people brought with them. The continuous theme that was heard throughout the various protest groups that were in the city, the various rallies and marches that took place, was the sense that the Baltimore Police Department no longer served certain parts of the Baltimore community, specifically the minority community, communities of color that felt not just 
that there was a lack of service, but oppressed and almost at war with the police department. And so that that lack of a sense of social justice dominated the overarching uh, experience that we had in Baltimore. Various people brought various uh, personal things to the experience, some families that had previous interactions with the organization. And of course, in any riot, there's always a group of individuals who joins in just because there's a, a riot taking place. That's the human experience. But if I had to pin it down to one thing, it would be that that, that there was a, a sense of a loss of social justice in the community. But I mean, how did we get to this moment? I mean, was this an isolated incident for Baltimore? Could this have happened many times before? Was the event that precipitated this that dramatic that everything exploded? I mean, what were some of the dynamics of the situation? You know, when I look at what got us to that place, there there are two uh, competing thoughts that they they run parallel with one another. One is the uh, ongoing uh, abuses committed by my organization that were detailed uh, on the front cover of the Baltimore Sun multiple times. Those experiences compound upon each other. And with each new incident where there was a clear-cut case of abuse, it only added fuel to the fire of the belief by many, many people in the city of Baltimore that the BPD was overly aggressive and hostile towards its community. That's one part of, of what got us there. And the other part of it is a much larger picture. When you look nationally at where Baltimore was in 2015, the Baltimore riots took place four months after the Eric Garner grand jury decision, which sparked protests across the country in response to the New York grand jury not indicting the NYPD officers in his death. And less than a year after Ferguson, which was a sea change moment for the country and the recognition that there are too many communities across the country that feel underserved by their police department. Those two things sort of vied with each other in the city for dominance. The arrest, injury, and subsequent death of Freddie Gray was the spark that ignited the kindling that had already been piled upon in issue after issue. What's important that isn't lost in all of this is while there were clear-cut systemic cases of abuse by the Baltimore Police Department, there were also thousands of police officers who were serving honorably and nobly. And so I don't want your listeners to be left with the sense that every officer that came to the BPD was overly aggressive or hostile towards minority communities or acted out of malice. That's just not the case. However, it only takes one incident to start to tear away a public trust. In Baltimore for a period of decades, uh, you can go back through two decades of public reporting. These weren't isolated incidents, but reflective of a greater systematic failure of the organization to address the needs of the community in a way that was responsive to their rallying cry. Do you think we're jumping ahead a, a little bit, but something you said in that sparked an idea is when you had mentioned that the, not everyone in the police department has came to the, the department in a, a negative way and they were doing honorable work can you say four years later that there's been any reform? 
that's a really, really difficult question to answer. Uh, there's clearly been policy changes that have taken place inside of the organization, and there have been a series of new police commissioners that have come in subsequent to the Freddie Gray riots. However, when you look at the public reporting from the federal monitor that's assigned to the department, his comments and what the federal judge said, both of which have been clear that the organization is not moving as quickly as it needs to. The federal judge actually cast doubt on the viability of the Baltimore Police Department to actually enact necessary reforms. I don't know that you can say that right now the organization is in a place where the community would look at it and say this is a different department. That doesn't mean that there isn't really good work going on inside of the organization that's reflected in some of their social media content that you see. But to say that this is a different department right now, just based on the public reporting, I I don't know that that's the case. And, And quite frankly, when you look at the profession as a whole nationwide, there's still a a clear need to reform the profession nationally. The fact that there is just now legislation being passed in the Congress to t- to make lynching a federal hate crime, the fact that the Democratic nominees across the board right now, as the primary field begins to take shape, social justice, the role of law enforcement are significant pillars in many of the candidates' campaign platforms is enough to let anybody who's paying attention know that the profession itself hasn't evolved to the place where communities feel like they're served by their police departments. And in the case of Baltimore specifically, public reporting tells us that they haven't gotten there yet either. And that makes sense. I mean, obviously, this experience hastened in your life a, a, a an ability to become a crisis communications expert. Obviously, you've taken time to write this book. At this point, if public policy professionals are looking at this incident, what are some of the key takeaways you want them and the public at large to know about from this fiasco? Ed, that's a great question, and, and I can't thank you enough for asking it. The the There's two part. <laughs> I seem to be on a, a two-part track today with you. There's, there's two parts to that question. One is the role of law enforcement and what communities want from their law enforcement agencies. That is not a part of the conversation as much as it needs to be. What you see in cities in crisis, whether it's Sacramento, New York, Chicago, Baltimore, even to a, a, some degree in Ferguson, is police leaders coming in and saying, this is what we're going to do to reform the department. What you don't see is police leaders coming into communities and saying, tell us what you want from your police department. What does it mean to have a community-oriented police department to you? What, what, what are the services you expect us to provide? That's got to be an important part of the component to reforming organizations. As far as public policy professionals, we need to reevaluate the fundamental nature of how law enforcement operates the current modality that law enforcement operates under is a construct that was designed nearly 100 years ago. And when I talk about that, what I mean to say is that as early as the 1920s, we started to use time measurement studies to evaluate the efficacy of law enforcement in communities. 
how quickly an officer got to a call, how quickly they handled that call, how quickly they got back into service became an important part of the understanding of what police officers were doing. As we've gone through the decades in various police trends that have risen and fallen from hotspot policing to neighborhood policing to broken windows, the thing that hasn't changed is the need for your patrol officers to be 911 response driven. And when that's the metric that you're using to evaluate how effective your patrol is, you're putting an artificial pressure on police officers to get out there and handle calls as quickly as possible, not taking into consideration the root causes of the crimes that they're investigating in the first place. What I would submit to public policy professionals is that if we want to see wholesale change in the way law enforcement interacts with communities, then we need to have a wholesale change in what we expect them to do. If you give officers time and tools, resources necessary to address some of the root causes of crime, you not only actually make an impact on crime, but it changes the relationship in the community. If I have time, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Certainly. You have an officer that goes out to a drug dealing call on a corner in any major American city. The call comes into 911. Your patrol officer is dispatched out to that call. They get there. They do a very quick street level investigation. And if necessary, they effect an arrest. That individual is transported to whatever holding facility they go to. The officer writes out a quick report and they get back into service. That sounds like that should be how it works. But the reality is there's a reason that individual is standing out there selling drugs in the first place. And when you ask that question, it opens up a whole can of worms about societal ills. We know that nutrition, uh, lack of clean water, lack of opportunity for uh, good quality, high paying jobs, access to good public transportation, clean, healthy neighborhoods, all of these things contribute to the crime rates that we have in cities. One of the interesting things that Ed Flynn looked at when he was the chief of police was the connection of not race to crime, but economic status to crime. And what you find is in the most disadvantaged communities with the least access to clean, healthy neighborhoods, you have the highest crime rates. Police officers are the front line of any city's response to social ills, but they are given the least amount of tools to be able to address those issues. You send police officers into situations where there are mental health crises, into situations where there's domestic abuse, child abuse. You send police officers into situations where uh, there is rampant alcoholism or uh, neglectful housing, all of these things that we know contribute to crime. And the only tool that they're equipped with is the ability to make an arrest. If we want to see a wholesale change in law enforcement, we need to start equipping police officers with tools and resources. So that means you give an officer the time that they need to investigate why this individual is standing out here dealing drugs in the first place. Maybe they need access to mental health services. Maybe they need access to job training somewhere in the community. Perhaps they're out there because there isn't a role model in their life. And so they've fallen into this cyclical pattern that we see of young kids looking to Uh, kids that are only six, seven years older than them as role models and getting sucked into that system. So if we can interdict 
the root causes of crime in the first place and work to bring positive change to those communities. Not only can we impact the crime rate, but you're changing the relationship dynamic in the communities. I'll go back to your first question. Uh, what got us there? What was the, what was the theme? And I talked about this lack of social justice. Mm-hmm. Well, when you start having police officers engage in communities in a, in a way to be helpful, you start to walk down that path towards social justice. Now, before everybody loses their mind and says that I just want to hug crime away, <laughs> the reality is you still need police officers. There are still going to be bad people who do bad things. You're going to have people who commit homicides and shootings and robberies and rapes. There's still going to be car chases. There are still going to be foot chases. There's still got to be somebody stopping the bank robbery from happening. There's still going to be crime that takes place that needs an immediate intervention from law enforcement. But statistically, when you look at the number of calls that police officers respond to, repeat calls for service, uh, any city in America averages between 20 and 30 percent of their calls are repeat calls for service. Let me pull those off the table. Let me fix those. And all of a sudden, I've got a lot of resources that I can start dealing with these other issues on. Uh, that's where we start to get to real change in law enforcement. Excellent. It's fascinating stuff. I, I mean, and it ties into the passion it's, that's obvious that you put into the book. I mean, I'm an admirer of the book. I had never read anything by you before, but was impressed with your multi-layered writing style. I mean, as I was reading it, I saw echoes of David Halberstam, the legendary journalist turned historian who wrote The Breaks of the Game, The Best and the Brightest, several others. How'd you go about writing this book? It was a a complicated process of sorting through my own emotions about what took place in my city and trying to have a clear goal. it's one thing to write a book just to detail an experience, but for me, it had to be bigger than that. Uh, The the takeaway for me in, in the role that I played in Baltimore was that something positive has to come out of this. And in the intervening years between the time that I started writing the book and I left the organization, I've been traveling the country working to reform the role of law enforcement. That experience really helped to fuel some of my research and understanding about root causes of crime, how communities interact with their police officers, what police officers want, what communities want. And I found myself at my kitchen counter one day with my laptop in front of me, and I just started to write about my experience in Baltimore. And I realized that I could use the pivotal moments that took place from the arrest of Freddie Gray through the lifting of the state of emergency as touchstones for some of the larger issues that I was seeing in my work across the country. And it was a uh, several month process that took place where I would write uh, a couple paragraphs, stop, go back, read them, change them a thousand times. And eventually over a couple of months, I ended up uh, with more chapters than, than I realized it was, it was very much an organic process. Very good. And um, I wanted to know when looking ahead, the last thing I wanted to touch on today is when you look at the candidates for president in 2020, 
and those who are on the fence and may declare soon, how are they on the subject of police reform? That is as complicated a question as the candidates themselves that are running. (laughs) Uh, Castro has come out talking about reparations for slavery and has made that sort of a cornerstone piece of, of his candidacy. When you talk about reparations, you get into all of the issues of the Jim Crow era and the role that law enforcement played during the Jim Crow era and into the civil rights uh, march, uh, the, I'm sorry, the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And so he's, he's very clearly staking his position as one of the most progressive left-leaning candidates when it comes to uh, law enforcement, the role of law enfor- that law enforcement has. You go to um, Harris, her role as a prosecutor, she sees the role of law enforcement through the unique lens of somebody who took cases from police officers and prosecuted them, which is a very unusual position uh, in modern times in the last 20 years of U.S. presidents. We haven't had that type of a, a major party nominee yet. Joe Biden has a, a long, long, long history of supporting police and firefighters advocacy for police and firefighters, a lot of bills that he worked to pass to help police and firefighters. So you have a, a uh, panoply of, of candidates who go from the most extreme side of progressive reform and the questioning of why we have organizations like ICE all the way to the more centrist, moderate candidates who understand and appreciate the more traditional role of law enforcement but at the same time have had some public policy positions where they recognize reform being necessary. When you look at the, the passage of the, the recent criminal justice reform bill that was passed through the Senate and the House and signed by the president, that was a sea change moment for uh, elected officials in recognizing that maybe our criminal justice system isn't as perfect as we would like to think that it is. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very interesting to see what the base of the Democratic Party wants in terms of uh, progressive versus moderate or centrist candidates and how they start to push those policy positions forward. What I know for certain is that 2018 became the first year where the majority of children born in the United States were minority children. 2040 becomes the first year in this country's history where the majority voting bloc will be minority voters. What does that mean for the Democratic Party over the next 20 years as it begins to reestablish a new identity? I don't think that anybody can deny that the Democratic Party is in the throes of an identity crisis right now. (laughs) What candidate emerges and what that means in terms of the attorney general that they would appoint if elected and what that attorney general will do in terms of consent decree enforcement with police departments, in terms of pattern and practice, civil rights investigations, voting rights enforcement, is is going to be a very interesting journey to watch as the Democratic Party sort of tries to reset itself in, in this current cycle. No question about it. And we're early on and more people will be entering the race. They say there could be up to 30, perhaps more. So it should be a very interesting time with a panoply of different ideas 
across different spectrums, and we're looking forward to it. The book, Absolutely. The book is called The Politics of Crisis, an insider's prescription to prevent public to prevent policy disasters, excuse me. And the author is Eric Kowalczyk. Where is the book available? The book is available right now on iTunes, wherever anybody gets, uh, I said iTunes, because I'm thinking about my audiobook, which is about to come out. Uh, the book is available on Amazon right now, wherever anybody gets an ebook through Nook at Barnes & Noble, uh, and is now available on hardcover. Outstanding. Well, Eric, thank you very much for joining me today. And that's our show. The Nexus with Art Swift is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Thank you for joining me. And if you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well. 